you sit in on any kind of a business class, they're probably going to be telling you something about uh, having a mission statement. They might even use something into the language of ha- having a, a vision, a, a direction, a, a place to go for your your business or your company. Uh, and uh, somehow, some way, this has uh, crept up uh, in the church as well. But uh, what's being cited as vision is, uh, say, this is the same thing we see in the Bible. You, you don't have to search long when you uh, read the Old Testament. We even have the New Testament of, of vision appearing there in the Bible. So, therefore, it must be a Christian practice for the church today. Well, that's our uh, topic for discussion on this episode of Table Scraps. I'm Evan Gigline. Thanks for tuning us in. Today on the Table Scraps, we have Pastor Jeffrey Boyle. He's pastor of Grace Lutheran Church uh, and Trinity Lutheran Church in Wichita, Kansas, and has written a, a, a paper entitled The Witness of the Prophet's Visionary Experience Then and Now. And uh, Pastor Boyle's uh, probably highest distinction is uh, being uh, one who joined uh, uh, myself in Madagascar, and I think that is his claim to fame. Is that right, Pastor Boyle? I think that's fair enough. That, that, you know, I don't know if it gets any higher than being with you in a foreign country <laughs> under panic. I have many fond, me- many fond memories. Yeah, when we went over there, there was some political unrest, and and uh, I remember there was a, like a decision: do we want to risk it and keep going, or just uh, you know fold our tail between our legs and go back to the hotel? And uh, I remember certain members of our crew uh, hiding underneath the the van seats. Uh, whimpering, saying that we need to get back where where we'll be in safe ground. Um, you are you are far too kind. His name is Christopher <laughs> Hall, and he I think he he bawled like a baby. It was close to that at least. I remember you ca- catching some good deals with the peddler selling stuff through the the, right. the van window. So that's good. Well, uh, so you wrote this paper on vision, and uh, and I'm, I'm wondering uh, what set you off on this topic. Well, why uh, why take up the 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 topic of uh, vision casting and visions in the church. Uh, really, two two separate sort of events taking place at the same time. Uh, one is I'm currently enrolled and in, in working on my PhD through the University of Toronto in Old Testament studies, and the more that I spend time, especially in the prophets and the prophetic literature of the Old Testament, I find this constant language of vision. And uh, in my mind, we've we've gone far astray of what a prophet actually is, how he gets the words that he gets. You know, the, the scholarly world is is kind of a mess on this. And and so as I was going through this, I, I realized there's um, the way in which the prophet receives his revelation, the word that he is to speak. All is set within this context of a vision. So that's that's on the one hand, and that's kind of the more um, academic discovery that I was coming on. And on the other hand, I was dealing with, and, and still do, I, this is a, a constant struggle. Um, as soon as you listen to any of the big speakers on this for, for the growth of the church today, uh, you constantly hear you've got to have a vision. It's got to be a clear vision. You've got to have a vision statement. And if you are not visional, then you are uh, dragging your church down or, or at least hindering it from from stepping forward into into the growth and the blessings that God wants for it. So when these two sort of thoughts came together, I thought this would be a good match, trying to at least shed some some. Some of the scriptures light onto this language that we have of 
of vision and vision casting. In your paper, you have this quote uh, from a, a website. It says, leaders communicate the vision of a preferred future and a healthy sense of urgency about the direction and focus of the congregation. Uh, what, what red flags are, are in that sentence? The language is just a mess. Um, first of all, uh, I, in this paper, I, I introduce some of my unease about the, the word leader. So right when it starts off, leaders... Um, I think I think we run into a mess with that sort of talk. I mean, that's a whole other conversation in itself. But um, the fact that the leaders communicate the vision, and and so you've got to immediately ask, what is that vision? Where do they get it? How do they know it? All all of these sorts of questions. Now, now this quote says it's leaders communicate the vision of a preferred future. Whose preferred future? I mean, that's all of this is so subjective, and and really left to the the whims of, of whoever that leader is, and and whatever time or context he's sitting in. And then you've got um, the other red flags are um, a healthy sense of urgency. There is always in this vision talk a. Um, an extreme urgency. If we don't do it now, then it will all fall apart, and and there becomes this great weight on on my own action now. And and what it it also is is a, a rejection that the Lord is still the Lord of the church. And then lastly, it says a sense of urgency about the direction and focus of the congregation to have direction of that congregation seems to imply that there is a, a certain movement that the congregation is is located in. And, and whenever you're under that sort of movement language, you can't be pinned down, you can't be made concrete, you just float about. And, and that's why you need a leader to kind of balance you and, and, and show you that right direction. And so all of this is uh, as I try to argue in the paper later on, it's it's kind of all the same language that the Gnostics would use in, in any sort of abstraction, and uh, it undoes then the uh, the work of Christ, which is very concrete. So it sounds like uh, from this one sentence that, that, that the problem isn't so much, well, I shouldn't say the problem isn't only how one defines a vision or how come, how one comes to a division, but it's also a question of ecclesiology. How do you view the church? So in, in this quote, it would seem to indicate that the uh, the church is the congregations, that the congregation has a direction and focus, and that uh, direction and focus really has nothing to do with what Christ uh, mandated and instituted in the church. Right, and, and I think even the more you press them, the more uh, even that word congregation isn't used nearly as, as much or, or commonly as uh, community is. You know, where where even their congregation seems uh, too concrete uh, for them, and, and community allows for much looser borders and, and much more flexibility and flow. And so, yeah, the the church is as something instituted by Christ as um, the bride of of Him being the groom. All of that goes to the wayside when you start to speak solely of this. Uh, congregation in movement towards something. 
I'm looking at the uh, dictionary definition of uh, vision, which uh, you provide. And, uh, I mean, it's using words such as uh, uh, something seen in a dream or a trance um, or supernatural appearance uh, or visionary, uh, an unreal, illusionary type of thing, uh, utopian. Um, Now, these these are all words that... uh, is this the same way? Because we know that dictionaries are reflective of how words are used in, in the culture. Uh, is this the same kind of vision that's being used throughout Holy Scripture? No, no. Um, now, the the definition that Holy Scripture ends up, um, at least the dictionary definition that, that resembles most what Scripture says would be, uh, I've got it listed there as the fourth it's just real plain something seen and uh you know that why is that the fourth definition for vision something seen that's the most obvious and that's the way the <laughs> scriptures speak of it is um it is literally something that the eye beholds nice okay so uh before we get into some of the the biblical references that you provide in your paper um uh Explain what the uh, connection then is to the the leader um, and the vision in, in a congregation, and what happens if someone um, doesn't go along with the vision that is cast in a congregation. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, honestly, I was terrified when I, you know, there were a couple really good interviews and, and discussions on this. You you've got one with um, Chris Rosebro had had a, a section on this on his show, and then also. Um, that he ended up being interviewed on issues, et cetera, and that's where I, I first heard heard some of this language, especially out of Mars Hill. Honestly, I, I was terrified by it because you can see um, if you don't keep with the vision. Uh, I, I believe he even says, and um, this is Mark Driscoll at Mars Hill, that um, for those that didn't or don't keep up with this vision, he says a pile of dead bodies, uh, you know, stacks up behind the bus, and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain. I mean, he, he's literally talking about running over those that don't have or share or or see eye to eye on this vision. Anyone that opposes the the leader's vision ends up, according to, to this sort of theology, uh, opposing God, because God ends up saying whatever the leader thinks he he says and i mean it's terrifying it undoes all of our uh, sola scriptura sort of language about the authority of how do we know anything it's it's by by what the lord says in scripture what he reveals plainly for us to to oppose the the vision that the leader thinks he sees or hears or somehow subjectively receives um you can only counteract that by force. If someone doesn't see it, if they don't agree with you, then you've got to kick them out because they're they're then disruptive to the vision and, and they will not allow it to kind of go forward as, as they envision it. Uh, you say in your paper, what's more, uh, many within the church claim their vision is from God. They use words such as, the Lord laid it on my heart, I heard the Lord telling me, and even sometimes I saw where God was leading us. These visions can't be tested or questioned, proved or falsified. Uh, and by claiming that these visions are from God, then no wonder those not in line with the vision are left on their own, cast out, exiled, run over. 
in a certain sense, by opposing the vision or visionary, one also opposes God. So much for sola scriptura. What do you mean by that last part? Yeah, the uh, the leader, the visionary, the one who has this idea for where. Uh, notice again the movement language, where the church is or should be going. Um, ends up speaking with the authority of God. What he says is what the Lord wills. And you can't test it. You can't um, question it. I mean, that's one of the the sure signs of of a good leader is he can't be questioned. He can't be falsified. You can't... um, He is the authority. And so if that is the case, then, then scriptures have nothing to say, except typically where they agree with with this guy as an authority. Um, you just you lose all of scripture. It loses its its authority. It loses its weight. It loses any sort of ability to to ground us. Okay, so I think we have a pretty good picture of of how uh, the word vision is being used today. Take us uh, to maybe a couple of examples in Holy Scripture. Where do we see the word vision uh, come up in Holy Scripture? Well, sure. Um, that, and that's, that kind of tracks on with the, the more academic discoveries, the more I was, I was going along with this. And it's not, um, well, well, I think it's, it's deep and somewhat profound. It's also the most simple way of reading Scripture. And I think that's the way this often works is, um, Vision is always tied to the prophets. And, uh, um, you know, so in this paper I kind of put some of the the dictionary definitions that you, you find for some of the Hebrew words like chazon, uh, a vision. And, and what it does is it always, um, you know, the vision is always that event um, where the prophet literally with his eyes sees or, or beholds what God shows him. And then that vision is always um, both acted out but also heard. So um, oftentimes you open up almost any prophet at the the beginning of that book. uh, For instance, Isaiah begins, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw. Okay, so right, right there you've got the vision and the seeing, okay? Concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. There, you've got a listing of, of names, uh, not because they're trying to write some sort of, uh, not, not that they're necessarily uniquely important in their own, but, but that it locates it within time and place. It, it, it has uh, an occurrence here on earth. We actually see the same thing if, uh, if you're following the three-year lectionary. For this upcoming Sunday, we're in Luke chapter 3, and, and Luke almost sets, uh, well, he does. He sets John the Baptist up as a prophet, as an Old Testament prophet, and he locates, he even says, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the years of, and, and what he does in the 15th year, uh, during the reigns, and, and he lists Pilate and Herod and Lysanias. I mean, he's, he's listing all of them in the exact same way as, uh, as the prophets do. So all of this takes place concretely in time. There's always a vision connected to the Word, and it is always the prophet that sees, hears. And then the charge of the prophet is to go and speak it. 
Um, so what I've what I've done in in this paper is listed just uh, trying to walk through a few of the examples where you could see vision being a a really an event located in what I I call the heavenly council. Um, and I, I kind of, when I explain this to my Bible studies, I kind of think of it in terms of uh, either a courtroom scene or something where you've got you, you've got a judge up front, and, and oftentimes there's a, the plaintiff and the defendant, and you've got a kind of a paneled jury courtroom scene where where others are invited to to participate in this council, C O U N C I L, that sort of council, and. Uh, uh, kind of like our council meetings, and in this council, the uh, the Lord shows a vision, and it happens by His Word, just like all things. He speaks, and it happens, and and there you have this this vision that that everyone there is able to see, and uh, and when they see it, oftentimes uh, the prophets are who are also included in this council when they see this vision. Uh, sometimes they even interrupt it. You know, I, uh, the Lord says in, in Isaiah, who, who will go for us? And, and Isaiah says, send me. I mean, that's a kind of a bold move of the prophet who's, who's sitting within this angelic and heavenly council, uh, along with the angels and archangels, and he speaks up and he says, send me. Uh, you also get these sorts of um, interruptions in, in Zechariah chapter 3, there's a dialogue going on, and that's where um, Satan, the, the accuser, is cast out. You've got this sort of scene very clearly uh, in First Kings. This is uh, chapter 22 with the prophet Micaiah. There, uh, it's, a, it's a, one of those strange sort of scenes, but in First Kings 22 it says, and this is Masa, or Micaiah talking, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing beside him on, on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and one said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. So that's straight from 1 Kings 22. And, and the, the scene there is that you've, you've got it all very concrete. He sees the Lord sitting on his throne and surrounding him on left and right are the whole host of heaven that's angels and archangels. So there's this, there's this council that is where the vision takes place, and the prophet becomes uh, an invited witness to this scene. So when the, the uh, prophets of old, I mean, they, they would stand in their office of prophets, and when they would say that they saw a vision, they could describe to you the, the very thing that they saw. They could tell you, I mean, I think of, uh, uh, you know, in the book of Revelation, the vision of, of Saint, that was revealed to St. John. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so he describes the the four living creatures, and there's you know smoke and the angel angel holding the incense, uh, and and you know so he has these great descriptions. Um, but when pastors and leaders today use the term vision, they're not saying that I literally saw something; they're saying that this is 
uh, a way to go, a, a changing uh, format for the for the church. Right. I think that's exactly right. One is very concrete, tangible, located in time and space. It could, you know, and that's that's the joy of the vision of the prophets. It could be tested. It could be, uh, how do you know that, you know, and, and where do you get that from? And, and that vision aligns always with the way that the Lord has already revealed this in his Torah, in, in his word. But today, you've got these pastors going around saying, well, I, I've got this vision for my for my church. Tell me what you think about it. You know, it's and uh, well, well, how do you know that's that's good or right? You know, the Lord laid it on my heart. I, uh, I I've just got this feeling that this is where the Lord is leading me, and and it's also subjective. It's um, it's not grounded in Scripture. I mean, he'd be far better off to say. You know, I've got this vision because, look, I was really studying the book of Matthew, and uh, and he puts a lot of emphasis on, on preaching and teaching and, and baptizing and communing. Oh, well, that sounds that sounds like a good thing to do. Go ahead. That, that's a good vision, you know? Um, one, the way it's being used today is just so subjective. Uh, it really, the Lord ends up saying whatever you want him to say. Well, that was something I noticed too in, in the uh, in the prophets that you quote, um, the the content of the vision which they are are given um, is always in terms of of law and gospel, in terms of uh, repentance and faith, uh, so that the Lord is either warning those who do not repent that uh, that His wrath is to come, uh, or it's to to tell forth of a Messiah who would come to take away the sins of the world. Right. Right. And I would I would say it's always speaking of that Messiah, both both in the visions of, of judgment and in the visions of of great joy. All of them find their uh, their greatest climax or apex or or fulfillment, their telos, all in the cross. That, I mean, that's where really the the entire judgment of God is is rendered. That is where. Um, where the greatest joy then is is to be had. That's really why we call it Good Friday. That that in the midst of this great destruction on the Son of God, there's also great joy in, in knowing and trusting that 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 judgment has now been rendered. That the full wrath of God has been poured out, and it wasn't on us. What what uh, from? The Old Testament scriptures. Do we learn about uh, false prophets then, in, in terms of this discussion of vision? Yeah, no. It, I mean, that's a lot. It's a it's a very good question because Jeremiah, especially. I mean, he's um, he's kind of the one that gives us the most focal um, address to to what the false prophets are. Um, First of all, uh, I would say the, the false prophet is, by definition, the one that cr- claims to be one who speaks for God and doesn't. I mean, that's, that's just the basic definition. He, he claims to have the Lord's word, and yet he has not stood in his counsel. He has not seen his vision. And so all he has is what he, he thinks. You know, Jeremiah... Uh, chapter 23, this is where most of this takes place, but in Jeremiah 23 it says, Thus the Lord of hosts says, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds. 
not from the mouth of the Lord. And then uh, a bit later, so that's, that's verse 16, and verse 18 it says, For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? And then, and then he keeps going on in 21 and 22 saying, I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. So this is, uh, you know, then the Lord kind of finishes off that, that rant with a, a very strong um, word against them, that, he, that he, is a, he himself is against these lying prophets. First, uh, First Corinthians chapter four one says, "This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God." What does that verse mean? Yeah, I mean that's a it's a beautiful passage of Paul speaking of himself as one who stands in this this office, and he calls it now. Notice he doesn't say, "I, I am a prophet," but what he does is he says. I am one who is called into this office of a steward of the mysteries of God. And there is there's some very good scholarly work that has um, located Paul's use of the word mysterion, the, the Greek word mysterion, where we get our English mystery, in, and, and taken from the Hebrew word sod, which is counsel. Uh, there's a very wonderful article, a little article by Raymond Brown, that, that highlights just the semantic connections here. But um, to be a steward of the mysteries of God is to be one called uh, to, to properly uh, administer or distribute or uh, preach, proclaim the, the things or the events of our Lord's revelation. I mean, that's what the mystery is. And, and, and if you're going to use that word, which, you know, as we're reading through these, these prophets, we're reading Hebrew, but if we were reading it, it all in Greek, these, these visions are very much mysterious events. I mean, the whole context is, is, is mysterious. You've got heaven being revealed on earth. That's, that's the way these things are described. Isaiah again, in the call narrative there in chapter 6, is probably the most evident for this heaven-on-earth sort of reality, where he's, he's in, in the temple doing his, his duty, and, and there you have all of a sudden, it's like uh, his eyes open up and, and they see more uh, and, and clearly of what is already there. He sees the Lord, and, and his, um, his robe fills the temple, this is where we um, we enter into the same sort of vision really every time we we celebrate the Lord's sacrament to the sacrament of the altar where where we join in the song that Isaiah heard from the seraphim holy 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 there's this heavenly conversation taking place in this council and Paul claiming to be a steward of the mysteries claiming to be a one entrusted with this vision with with the vision passed down from the prophets 
the the mysteries of God, the the revelations of God, the way that He has chosen to to be with and come to His people today, and that's how He says that's how people should regard us. And and notice He doesn't say as leaders of the movement or or anything like that. It's as servants, servants of Christ, and then stewards. That is givers, you know, people that give out uh, and and apply and. Uh, administer the mysteries of God. I uh, I can't go without quoting this uh, this note from Luther that you put on here. Uh, Solely through His Word, God would declare to us His will and His counsels, not through our notions and imaginations. Yeah, uh, and just coming across it, I was, I was like, "Oh, good, Luther gets it." <laughs> and, and notice how he—I mean—he's so good on this, but he. He always locates the Lord's will, his counsels, in his word. And and that very clearly draws you back to one of the most comforting things about this God is he always wants to be located. He always wants to uh, take place in, in, in real time and place and in the in the boringness of a timeline in a history class, that's that's where you could find this sort of God of ours, and uh, and he locates himself in his word. Amos uh, in chapter three says, "For the Lord Yahweh does nothing without revealing his counsel to his servants, the prophets." That counsel there is, and and we've got to always. Our English is sometimes hard here. We have a, a council, C-O-U-N-C-I-L, uh, like our council meetings. But then we also have council, C-O-U-N-S-E-L. The kind you go these to are, on a regular basis. Yeah, exactly. And these these are uh, yeah, your you're counselor, <laughs> right. You're um, someone that gives you good counsel or, or poor counsel. Here, the Lord does nothing without revealing his his divine counsel, his heavenly courtroom, his, his will, his vision, uh, himself. He does nothing without revealing himself to his servants, not leaders, his servants, the prophets. And lastly, uh, Pastor Boyle, respond to someone who may come up and talk to you and say, you know, our church is going through a kind of a time of rediscovering yourself and re, uh, you know, re, uh, reinventing uh, what we're all about. And, um, and, and, and a leader has come in and said that uh, this is going to be our vision uh, for our congregation from henceforth. How would you respond to that uh, concerned parishioner? First, I would, I would certainly sympathize with them because they're not alone here. This is, this is happening all over the place, and understandably so. It's happening all throughout kind of the Protestant world. Uh, much less understandably so. It's happening very much here within our own church body, the Missouri Synod. Um, so I would, I, would, I would first be sympathetic towards them and, um, and urge them to, as best they can, uh, keep coming back to the Scriptures. Keep, ca- keep asking the very simple questions. You know, I, I think we do this all the time. Change isn't necessarily a bad thing, but I think it's always helpful to ask, well, why? Why, why are we changing this? Why are we rethinking who we are? 
we may have to be rethinking who we are because as, as we look at ourselves and compare it to the way the, the scriptures speak of us, we've, we've gone a long way away from that. And, and maybe we do need to rethink that and come back to the way the scriptures speak. But on the other hand, if we're changing away from what seems to be clearly revealed in the scriptures, I would, I would encourage any layperson to simply ask, why? And how do you know that's the best way to go? I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't encourage them to attack the, the leader. They're, they're going to get run over, and they've got to be careful about that. I would encourage them to, to continue kindly in asking to be located in the scriptures, to, to find out where they, could, uh, where they could find their certainty. As, as Luke opens up his gospel, he writes to Theophilus that, that he writes these things so that he would be certain. You know, the, the Greek where there's asphalto is asphalt. I, I, wa- I want you to be so, so grounded and certain in, in what is, has taken place with this Christ uh, that, that you would be made asphalt, uh, that you would be so, so grounded that you could stake your certainty on it. And that's, that's what our we all need is we need something to cling to and and we can't cling to a movement or emotion or something that can't be located uh you know or, or instituted or anything like that we need that concrete word and that word is already revealed in the scriptures and the more the the layperson is able to to kindly ask these questions the the more the the leader or the, that pastor may be able to uh, receive that sort of criticism with with thoughtfulness, and we pray that he would. I, I would pray for them too. Yeah, that's well put. Uh, you know, so that our our Lord has uh, established um, a place on earth for our certainty, and this is what Luther is big on that uh, that you would know that the forgiveness forgiveness of sins is delivered uh, to you, and our Lord does that uh, where His Word is and where He has put. Uh, his sacraments. And so he, I mean, think about this. God himself binds his forgiveness in uh, to things like uh, water and uh, bread and wine and, and the reading of his very own word. I mean, these, these things are, are so common. And so he binds them to a place where they can be easily found. And uh, what, the, what the visionary wants to do is, is play the shell game with these gifts. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And, and by doing that, uh, by not letting them be be found concretely, he puts himself as the um, the Lord of these gifts. And uh, and if you want them, you've got to to make yourself right with the leader. <laughs> mm. I mean, he he becomes then this domineering uh, Lord, ruler, or or probably the best way to speak of it is is with the German die Führer. You know, I mean, he is. Uh, he is then the one who has control, that forceful control over these gifts. And, uh, and that's the way our, our sinful nature always wants it. We want to have control, but, but the Lord wants it to be free. And I think that is, you know, as you think about what is the greatest distinction or, or between a true prophet and a false prophet, uh, the distinction is whether or not they have, they have been in that courtroom, whether they have seen and heard the vision. But how does the person know? And uh, the person that 
you know, they both claim to have been there. They both claim to have seen the word. How do you know? And I think one of the signs, and there there, there are signs along the way. Um, one of the signs is that the false prophet can never simply trust the word. He must force it. He must force the the people to get in line. The true prophet knows that he cannot force anyone into this. The true prophet knows that he himself must suffer, and and that great suffering comes from trusting in this word alone, and that no matter what the Lord will accomplish, the purposes for which he has sent that word. So so I think uh, as you go through, you will find often the leader taking a position of power, whereas uh, the maybe the servant... Uh, the pastor who who wants to simply give the word will um, will not have that need to force that word on others because he has nothing to lose. Is, uh, you know, in that sense, he just works here. He's a servant, a mouthpiece, and he will be rejected, and he knows that. That is fantastic. We've been talking with Pastor Jeffrey Boyle. Uh, he's pastor of Grace Lutheran Church and Trinity Lutheran Church in Wichita, Kansas, and author of this article, uh, the, the Witness of the Prophet's Visionary Experience Then and Now. And if you'd like to read this paper, you can find a link to it on our webpage at tabletalkradio.org in the description of this show. Thanks. Thank you so much, Pastor Boyle. This is fantastic. Hey, it was a joy.